The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Hope you have your Bible with you. Take your Bible out and turn to Esther. Esther chapter 9. We get to finish the book this morning. Esther's been kind of difficult, if I'm being honest. Studying and preparing has been good. I've enjoyed it. But we'll be moving to First uh, and Second Samuel. is where we'll be headed to, just so you know. In case you want to study ahead and read ahead where we'll be. That's where we'll be up until, dare I say, it's coming Christmas. It's just crazy. Think about. But Esther chapter 9 and chapter 10 will be our goal for, for this morning. I don't want to do a recap of Esther today. Hopefully you've been with us. You've been in the book. You kind of know where we are at. But when we ended... Last week, there was an edict that was written to counteract the edict that was written by Haman. Haman had wrote an edict saying, on this certain day, all of the Jews need to be destroyed. And so it encouraged people to take up their arms and to fight and to kill all the Jews in the land. Mordecai then wrote an edict to counteract that, saying the Jews could fight for themselves and defend themselves. And so that's where we kind of left off. Uh, heading into chapter 9, with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unknowns of what is going to happen to the Jewish people. Uh, But they were celebrating, they were feasting, and they were happy because this edict had been written. And So today we find the battle takes place and we see the end of Esther. So follow along with me in the first 10 verses of chapter 9, and then we'll stop there. It says, now in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, and that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Hasuerus to to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, Parshandatha, Delphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Arisiah, Eridiah, and Vajazatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Let's stop there. So we see uh, in these first 10 verses that really complete victory was guaranteed and was delivered uh, to the Jewish people. I mean, we see it right off the bat in chapter 9. It says uh, what the people had planned on doing to the Jews, actually the opposite occurred. It tells us that in verse 1, and then it just goes on to explain a little bit more of what that means. But there are some interesting things to point out, and this will continue to come up as we continue uh, to read, and that is notice that when the Jews destroyed, they did not touch the plunder. 
This is important, and you'll see this again. I talked a little bit last week about holy war. It's obvious in this passage and reading here that they saw this as holy war because one of the rules of holy war was that you didn't touch the plunder because it's not yours. It's God's anyways, because you are fighting on behalf of God. That's what you are doing. And so the goods are, are not yours. And we see this happening all throughout this chapter. You'll notice as we looked at verses three and four, it says that the people of the land started to side with the Jews. And it's an interesting reason why. They sided with the Jews because of fear of Mordecai. If you remember last week, we talked a little bit because there was a, there was a verse that said, many people converted to Judaism. And we could celebrate that saying, look at all these people who've come to trust in the Lord. God is really using Esther and Mordecai. But we had a little question. Was this really a real conversion that took place in their life that they trusted in the Lord? Or was it something else? Well, I think we start to see here in this chapter, it probably was something else. And it was fear of Mordecai, not fear of God. It was fear of Mordecai. Mordecai now had gained such great prominence within the land, it tells us, that his fame continued to rise. And so obviously, we also see in this, he had the king's ear. And so there was fear in the land of this man, Mordecai. And so they were saying, well, it would be wise of us if we, if we sided with the Jews here. Now, I don't know if this was a philosophical debate in their head or, or much of a moral debate in their head. It doesn't seem like that. It seemed like the debate in their head was to survive. To, to even maybe thrive in the land. And if I'm going to do that, then I need to side, it looks like, with Mordecai and his people. And that is the decision that was made. And so as we continued through in those verses, we see that the Jews had great victory. And so much so that the writer of Esther here in, in verse 6, going on through verse 10 where we ended, wanted to make sure that it was pointed out that not only did Haman die, but his whole family was destroyed as well. That absolutely everybody in his family was destroyed. And what we see happening here is this thing that God had called on Israel to do a long time ago and to destroy the Amalekites. And Israel was not faithful in doing that. King Saul would not do that. We see that. He took the plunder. He took the king. He didn't destroy. And as a result, King Saul then was God said, then this is not my king anymore. We see this finally coming, though, to fruition here with Mordecai in this edict because we see Haman's line being destroyed. And that is what the author wants us to see here, that Israel is doing finally what they were supposed to do in destroying the Amalekites completely. The line of Haman is over. This guy who at one time was second in command in the land, and if we were to read this book, we would think, he's the guy that I want to be. I want to be in his position. Yeah, he's got some flaws. He's kind of mean to this group of people. But look at he has he has everything. Now we see that there's been a great reversal. A great reversal has took place. And he not only is destroyed, but any mem remembrance of him is destroyed as well. And left in the ground. And so we see an absolute complete victory for the Jewish people and for Mordecai already in the first 10 verses. Let's continue on, verse 11 and 19. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the 10 sons of Haman. 
What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. So let's stop there just real briefly. The king, the king asks Esther, Let, let's see what's happened today. And they, they gather the numbers of those who have died. And the king says, well, it kind of seems like a victory. What else do you want? What, what other requests would you have? Ask of anything and I'll, and I'll give it to you. Now you can pause here for a moment and you have to maybe wonder what you would say if you were in Queen, es- Queen Esther's spot. Maybe you'd say, thank you. You, you did what you, you know, we asked that you would help us out. You allowed us to make this edict. Everything has went well. Uh, we appreciate it. I don't need anything else. But let's see what Esther says. It says, then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to go to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's 10 sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's sons, 10 sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. So it's kind of interesting because I think we run into another little moral dilemma here in trying to gather who is this Esther. Because the king comes and says, man, it seems like you've gained victory. This was the day that you were to be destroyed, and instead the opposite has occurred. What do you want? You want anything, anything you want. What do you want? And what Esther asks, it's interesting. Can we do this again tomorrow? Now, I don't know about you, but that seems wrong. That does not seem very godly, does it? I mean, that doesn't seem appropriate here. Now, again, we can read into this, and there's a danger of reading into this, as I've been warning us all through reading this book over and over again. Because number one, I think we could say, Esther's bloodthirsty. We could say that. She's gotten a little caught up. She's gotten a little wrapped up in everything that is going on. She was worried about her kinfolk. She was scared of what was going to happen. She laid her life on the line. She sees that victory has happened, but it's got her excited and she wants to see more. You could definitely say that. You could definitely read into that. And I don't think you could find anywhere where where you could be argued against in that. But also, what might have happened is Esther might have been aware of some more threats that were taking place. She might have been privy to some conversations within the city that said that the, that the decree that Haman had wrote wasn't going to end just on that day, that there was more fighting that was going to happen. There was more things that were going to take place. And so she knew that it needed to be said by the king that it was okay for the Jews to keep fighting for their lives. And so we could look at it in that light as well. We, we really don't know what it is. I guess you'll have to decide for yourself as you read this passage, or you'll just have to kind of sit in the mystery which is where I would encourage you to sit. Because that's what I think the writer really wants from us as we look at Esther as a whole, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. But also Esther says, not only do I want to keep fighting, I want the sons of Haman who we've already killed, who are already dead, let's go throw them up there on those gallows so that everybody can see. Everybody can see what's happening. Now again, this looks bad, I would say, but this was very common in holy war. 
that the armies would do this with the kings or whatever. We even see this happen with Israel's leaders. When Israel would finally be conquered, we see King Saul and his son Jonathan paraded around like this by the, by the enemy. So this just wasn't a thing that Israel did. It was something that was very common uh, throughout all the land. We see then that the Jews did fight there in Shushan around the gates and that the Jews would kill 300 more people. But again, the writer is very clear to point out to us, they did not take the plunder. And if you remember in Mordecai's thing, it was take the plunder, kill them and then take it all. It's, your, it's yours. And well, the king was promised all of this money, if you remember. But again, the writer says they did not touch the plunder. Why? Because it's not theirs. If this is a holy war that they are fighting, then it's, then it's God's. They're not fighting for gain uh, financially at all. And so they did not touch any of it. All right, now follow along with me as we read uh, beginning, let's see, in verse 18. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as the 14th and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt And the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Asurus to establish among them that they would celebrate yearly the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar. As the days on which the Jews had rested from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the customs which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast pur, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that the wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter And what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who had joined them, that without fail, they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. That these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants." Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abilhel, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Assyrus with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them. And as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting, So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Let's stop there. So we see that it was established that the Jews now would celebrate. They would celebrate rest from their enemies. And notice, they're celebrating rest from their enemies, not victory. I think that's key. That's something very important here. We today like to celebrate days of victory. 
the day that the battle was won, that's the day that would be established. That's the day that we are going to celebrate because that's the day that we have victory. But here we see the Jewish people celebrating the day after because it is the day after that they finally experienced rest from all their enemies that were around them. Frederick Bush has a commentary on Ruth and Esther. He says this way, he says, the festival does not celebrate victory in battle and the joy prescribed is not malicious glee over the slaughter of their enemies. The festival commemorates rather the fact that they gained relief from their enemies and that life was transformed for them from sadness to joy and mourning to a holiday. It's a very important thing. Because as I said last week, as people read this, they see the slaughter and a lot of people come back saying, God is not a good God, a loving God, if this, if this is what he prescribes. But it's not about the slaughter. And I don't want to go back and talk about what I did last week. You can listen to that online or something like that. It's about the rest that was given to his people. And that's what's celebrated here. That is what they want to celebrate during Purim. But we do have to notice and we do have to realize as we go through this book and as we see what we just read, that there seems to be a real lack of worship in this festival. Nowhere does it say that this festival was initiated by God. Over and over again, it says Mordecai initiated this. Mordecai told the Jewish people to celebrate this. When they talk about how to celebrate, notice it's a day of feasting. It's a day of giving presents to one another. But it never mentions worship of God in it. It never mentions praise. It never mentions deliverance by the hand of God. We simply don't see that anywhere. And I think that should pique our interest here. So one of the questions I guess that you could ask is, well, then is it appropriate then to celebrate in the midst of these circumstances? Understanding the whole of Esther, I would say, yes, it was appropriate for them to celebrate because they did find rest. And there is joy there. And it's worth celebrating. It's a, it's a good thing that God had provided this for them, even though God is not mentioned anywhere, anywhere in there. Well, let's read the end of Esther chapter 10, only three verses. It says, and King Hasurus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of the Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Asurus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. I really think the writer writes this to help us to see that the world continues on. After all that happened, after all the stuff that we've learned in Esther, we know, since we get to look back at history, that there are still battles that lie ahead for the Jewish people. Just because they defended themselves here in this instance, they killed 75,000 people, it says, and they rested and they had some peace. We know, because we know a little bit about history, some more than others, this was not the final battle for the Jewish people. I mean, it wasn't too long ago that the Jewish people had to fight one of the biggest battles that they would ever face with the world war. And so we know that this rest wasn't necessarily grasped and accomplished forever in their life. And it's because the world continues to go. 
I mean, we see it right from the onset at the very first couple words of chapter 10. King Hasurus, still there, imposing tax. He is still king. And we know that he's not a good king. In all of the book of Esther, he made so many mistakes. He allowed these edicts to be written. He did all this bad stuff. And still at the end of Esther, you might hope that it would say, and Mordecai became king of the land. But it doesn't. It says King Hasurus or King Xerxes, as he is often referred to, is still the king. And so the main struggle for the Jews still exists in the land that they live in. They are captive. They are foreigners in a land. Really, not much has changed for them at the end of the story. From the beginning to the end, they're actually in the same situation, the same boat. Oh, they had a a real downtrend with Haman. They had a real upswing with Mordecai and the victory. But when you look at the beginning of Esther and you look at the end of Esther, they're in the exact same spot. No worse, no better. That's where they find themselves. I think we can understand this because today the world still continues. We can step We can step outside of these doors here in a moment. And you might say, that was the best worship service of my life. Now, maybe you would say that. I probably wouldn't, if I'm being quite honest. But when you step out that door, all of a sudden you're going to be smacked in the face with what? The world still continues. With what happened in there, I walk out of this room and the world hasn't really changed. Everything still seems to be the same. I mean, in your life, you can receive some, some great victory from the Lord, but here's just the fact of the matter. The, the world still moves on despite your great victory. In your life, you can overcome some great temptation in your life and you can see victory over it, yet tomorrow the world still continues and that temptation still gets thrown in your face, does it not? So when we look at Esther, what's the good news in it? What's the point of it? They're still in the same position. If we take it to try to apply it to our life, when you walk out of here and you say, well, now I understand the book of Esther. So what? Because when you walk out of here, the same struggles still happen. The same people who are in control are still in control. So what really has changed? What really can we learn as we look at the book of Esther as a whole and when we look at chapters 9 and 10 singly? Well, I think there's three things. There's probably more than that, but there's three that we're going to look at briefly. First is this, and I want to point this out. It's really throughout the whole book, but we see it, I think, more specifically in 9 and 10. It's the importance of vocation in each church member's life and your willingness to be faithful in the vocation that you are in. You might say, well, where in the world is that in this book? I find it very interesting that Esther is just a woman. Uh, she, she's not given any real title at all until she becomes queen. It was just told of us that she was a, a Jew who happened to be a virgin and younger. And she wins this competition. Her family member, Mordecai, is just a man. He's just a Jewish man. He's not a priest. 
There's nothing special about him at all. There doesn't, you, have, you actually have to wonder, does he even work? He seems to be at the king's gate all the time. What's he doing there? Is he just nosy? Is he just interested in stuff? There doesn't seem to be any great qualities of, of either of them that would make us think that they were some mighty people within Israel, that, that all the people in the lands of King Asurus would, would look to them as their leaders. We, don't, we really don't see that anywhere at all. And so they carry with them real no important title whatsoever. The fact is, most Christians will carry really no important title. For most Christians, we will just be normal Christians. Just like Mordecai and Esther were just normal Jewish people with their warts and their good things and all that wrapped up together. This is who they were. As you sit where you are today, this is who you are. And we, we can say that. This is, this is who I am. But oftentimes we fail to see the importance of our vocation in our life that God has called us to, to benefit us, to benefit this world, and more importantly, to benefit the kingdom of God. For most of you in this room, you will never have the title of pastor. For most of you in this room, I will never find your picture on a prayer card saying, pray for this missionary as they go off to India. I'm just not going to find that. Uh, it's just not going to happen. You're going to leave here and you're going to go do what you do on Sundays. And sadly, tomorrow, your alarm's going to go off at five in the morning or six in the morning and you're going to trudge off to the job that you always go to. And you're going to say, I hate this job. When can I retire? How much longer is it? I wish they'd just offer me a way out. Well, why do I have to go through this again? Now, some of you, though, are blessed, and you'll wake up in the morning, and you'll say, I get to go to work. I, I like my job. I love what I do. I get to go do this, and that's what you're going to do, and you're going to come home, and you're going to do what you do at home. Get some dinner, go to bed, wish you could sleep longer, and do it all again. That's what you're going to do. You're going to do that day in and day out. Most Christians are farmers, they're bankers, homekeepers, soldiers, line workers, accountants, doctors, nurses, teachers, police officers, retail workers, line cooks, chefs, salesmen, contract workers, machinists. I could keep going on and on and on. But what I can't add to this list is most Christians are not pastors and missionaries. It's just not, it's just not the case. But that does not mean that you are missing out on what God has for you. I would dare say, just like Mordecai and Esther, you are exactly where God wants you right now. Now, maybe not spiritually. Maybe you're not as close to the Lord as you need to be. And, and maybe God has something new for you very soon, a new job or, or something like that. Maybe, maybe, slight chance, I would say. For most of us, we are exactly where God wants us right now. And maybe, just maybe, he has you there for your good. Or maybe he has you there for the good of the economy, for the good of society. Or maybe, maybe, he has you there for the good of his kingdom. Now, I don't know how you look at your job in the the things that you do. I've had plenty of jobs where I thought, this is such a waste of my time. 
If it was not for this check that comes every week or every couple weeks, there is absolutely no way I would spend one second here. I've definitely thought that. I've definitely been in those positions before. But looking back, I understand how wrong I was to think that it was a mistake that I was there. Or that it was a waste. Because God doesn't waste his time and he doesn't waste my time. And he has us where we are on purpose. What we have to remember as Christian people doing the things that God has called us to do in our normal everyday life is that our job is to be faithful to him as we do it. To be faithful Christians in that vocation that he has called me to. So if all I'm doing is pounding nails and building buildings, I can still be a very faithful Christian in doing that and honor God with every single nail that I hit. It's possible to do that. And it's really amazing to see how God would work in the midst of that. In all of these things that we do, we must be faithful to him. In another commentary that I use, this woman's name is Karen Jobes. It's actually considered one of the best commentaries on all of Esther. She puts it this way, and I want to read her words because she's just better than me at saying it. It says, leadership of the church and administration of the sacraments are rightly the responsibility of the ordained clergy. To me. But God's redemptive work in the world is not confined to those who are ordained. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4.12 that those holding offices of the church are to equip God's people, both women and men, for the work of the ministry so that the body of Christ might reach its goal in him. The ordained officers of the church do not alone carry the work of the Lord from generation to generation. Both clergy and laity, that's you, is shown both in scripture and history to be essential for actualizing God's redemptive plan and bringing it to its culmination in Christ. The significance of Esther and Mordecai as agents of God's providential rule encourage all of us to live for Christ as we live out the calling God has given to us, both men and women, whatever that calling may be. Now, this often is not lived out, though. It's often seen as if, Pastor, it's your job to make sure that the gospel goes from generation to generation. It's the staff that we assemble there to make sure that we are being faithful in what God has called us to do in reaching this community. Pastor, it's your guys' job to think of ways to do that. I have to tell you, that, that's wrong. God has already thought of a way to do that. Can I tell you what it is? It's you sitting in these pews. I just had a conversation with uh, a local church planner here who I have to coach every couple weeks or whatever they require of me. And we're talking and I said, you know, at some point, you have to stop being the number one seed spreader in the community. I said, at some point, that can't be your task anymore as the pastor. At some point, you have to invest in the people that God has brought to you and entrust on them to go out and spread the seeds of the gospel where they are. I said, now when that time is, I don't know. For you, you're going to have to figure that out. And he's, he's got to wrestle through that. He's got to talk about that. But if he's always out just spreading the gospel and never caring 
for the people that God has put under him as an ordained clergy member. He's not being faithful to his calling to minister to those people and to send them out to do the work of the ministry. He's actually really setting them back and setting his church back. And you might say, yeah, but he's out there spreading the gospel. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But I'm saying one of the tasks that God has given me as pastor is to make sure you're out there spreading the gospel. I don't work at Ford. I don't work at McDonald's. I don't live in your house. I'm not a salesman. I don't get to travel all around the country. I'm with boring Christians all the time. That's who I'm with all the time. Every meeting is Christians. Every counseling session is almost always Christians. That's who I'm always dealing with. I very rarely get the opportunity to see a non-Christian come and have a real conversation with them. Very rarely does that happen. But I'm guessing for you, it happens all the time. And you got to be ready to use your vocation for the glory of God, just like Esther and Mordecai were ready. When they took their opportunities, when God gave them chances, they jumped on them. And even in their cases, we can see they weren't always faithful, but God still managed to use them for his glory. And that's what brings me to the second question, I think, that helps us to understand Esther. As we study Esther, is this all fate or is this all the hand of God moving and working? Because if you were to read Esther, take away all the rest of scripture, just have the book of Esther, let's say it's in a hardcover and you read it. If you go back and read it again, you will notice by the end, what you might think is, you know what? That Mordecai and that Esther, they were just a couple of go-getters who really took advantage of the situation. I mean, that's what you could really come out from that if you read it. Because again, nowhere is God mentioned. Nowhere do we see prayer. Nowhere do we see any credit given to God. Nowhere do we see God praised. Nowhere do we see God worshiped. We don't see that anywhere in this book. And so if you just handed this to a non-Christian and said, hey, read this story, they might say, man, I'd like to be like Mordecai. They, they took advantage of things. They were in the right spot at the right time and they jumped on it. They jumped all over it. Really took advantage of it. But when we take Esther and we read it how we're supposed to, in light of the rest of scripture, because the Bible, yeah, it's all these different books put together in one, but it's, it's one book for us to read all of it. You can't take any of it away. When you read Esther in light of the, of the rest of scripture, we start to really see and understand what is happening. All of a sudden, Proverbs 16, 9 really comes to light. It says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. This really is the undercurrent of the book of Esther. Or maybe Psalm 139, verse 16, it says, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me when yet there was none of them. Before you were even born, before you were even formed, your days were accounted for by God. And so when we understand those truths and, and read Esther under that, we start to understand that there's more, there's more going on here. Proverbs 20, verse 24 says, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Now, this is important. If we want to answer that question, is this fate or is this the hand of God? If we, if we try to step back away from God and to account for all that's happened, according to Proverbs 20, 24, we won't understand. But when we understand that it's God who works, when it's God doing these things, then all of a sudden, 
it comes to light what's happening here. We understand life. We understand the events of life. We understand the things that are unfolding. And we understand that only when we grasp the simple fact that God is in control of all of it. All of it. Every second of every day, God is in control of absolutely all of it. And if God is in control of all of it, we also understand that scripture tells us God works in our life for good in all things. Scripture tells us that in Romans chapter eight, that God works together for good in all things. And so as we see here in Esther, even their mess ups, even their screw ups, even the problems that they would have, and we've pointed them out numerous times, God still managed to use those. In Philippians chapter two, verse 13, it says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, some of us might not like that. We might feel that's kind of a controlling of God, but I've got to be honest with you, that brings me great comfort because if God is who he says he is, I want him to control me. I want him to use me according to his purposes and his will for his glory and for his honor. Whether that means I'm Mordecai being honored or whether that means I'm Stephen being stoned and martyred at the beginning of my ministry. Either way, as long as it glorifies him, let it be and let it happen. But then lastly, what I think is pointed out in Esther is that there is a promise of rest. As I mentioned, as we look at Esther and we see the beginning and we see the end, they're in the same place. The same king still reigns. They're still captive. They're still foreigners. They do not have their own land. Oh, they found rest for a little bit, but it wasn't forever. But we know in scripture that there is a time when rest is forever. We're pointed to Christ. This should point us to Christ, that rest can only be found in him, that true rest is found in Christ alone and in nothing else, only in Christ. You might remember when when Israel was in the wilderness with Moses, there was a whole generation who could not enter God's rest. Why? Because of a lack of faith, it tells us. You you remember the whole story. There's, There's giants there. We can't fight them. There's no way. And as a result, then fine, go wander in the desert until your generation dies. You don't get rest because of lack of faith, because of what happened. This story is picked up in Hebrews chapter four. In Hebrews chapter four, the writer encourages us with this, with this idea of rest and he pushes us on as Christians to find our rest in Christ through faith in him and that alone. And to understand this though, that it's, that it's not about how much faith you can muster up within yourself that gives you rest. It's that God opens your eyes up to his truth and gives you faith to know his rest. There's a big difference there. To know his rest and to understand his rest. I wanted to read Hebrews 4, but it's, it's a little long. I'm not going to do that. I, I see what time it is. But I would encourage you to go back and to look at Hebrews chapter 4. And to read that and to understand what that means. Christ promises us rest because he lives and reigns forever as our high priest, as the one who can give us rest, as the one who satisfied the wrath of God. Because of this, we get to rest in Christ alone. 
This is what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. I think we read these verses a lot, but I do not think we live them out at all. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If I were to ask you this morning when you walked in, you feel pretty restful this morning? I mean, what would you have honestly said? I would have told you, no way. I'm so tired right now. I just want to go to bed. I just want to fall asleep. I want to have one night where I get to sleep all night and not be woke up by a kid. That's what I want. That's my desire. I'd love to see that happen. It just doesn't exist in my life. I would guess as, as Christians, we feel, we read that verse, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I, I dare say sometimes we question that. God, where is that promise? Because I feel heavy laden. I feel so burdened. And we know you are. You know why? You're angry all the time. You're always frustrated with everything. Grace is a bygone thing to you to pass on to people. I'm going to chew people out if I can. I'm going to do this. Why? Because you don't have rest and you struggle with that. So, so God, where is this promise? I think the reason we don't have this rest is because we say things like, Christ alone by faith alone is where I find my rest. We say that, but we don't live that out. We don't really know that in our heart. We don't rest in that promise and that alone. We continue to try to rest on our laurels. We continue to try to rest on what do people think about me? What does my boss say about me? How much money do I have in my bank account? What kind of car do I drive? What do my kids think of me? Those are the things that we find rest in. And because of that, you have proven to yourself and I have proven to myself there is no rest in those things. It's horrible. It's a life of agony. It's a life of always looking over your shoulder wondering, what are they thinking? It's the reason I still have a Facebook account, but I don't look on it anymore. I don't want to know what you guys are saying about me. I don't want to know what other people are saying about me. Because it does impact me. It, it hurts me. Why? Because I start to rest on my laurels. I start to rest on what you guys think. But that's not where I should find my rest. My rest should be in what does Christ think of me? What has he done for me? What does he say about me? And when I start to rest in those things and I see these things that, well, he has given me his righteousness. Well, it's because of him that I'm adopted into the family of God. It's because of him that I'm an heir to the throne of God, that I am an heir, that all these things are actually mine in, in Christ. I see that my life can be filled with hope and joy and peace and satisfaction. Why? Be because of him and what he has done. And as I start to trust in those promises and hold fast to those promises, all of a sudden I find rest for my soul. Oh, I might still wake up tired. My hands might still be sore from the job that I've done the day before. But my soul is not weary. My burden is not heavy because Christ has took my burden away. And I know that no matter what I might face in this world, it doesn't matter because I am cemented 
in him and in him alone. You might all leave me, every single one of you. You might leave me and say, he's an idiot. Don't go there. Don't listen to him. I don't like what he does here. I don't like this or that. Would that hurt? Absolutely, that would hurt. But it doesn't change things with my relationship with God. It doesn't change who I am in him. God's not gonna say, Tim, you know what? You're out because the people of MNBC just have convinced me that you're not very good. It doesn't take people to convince God of that. I'm not good. I'm saved by his grace. And you are too. So let us rest in the finished work of Christ. Let us rest knowing that the plan of God is perfect and that God continues to work day in and day out behind the scenes, even when we don't feel him, even when we don't notice him, If the book of Esther teaches us anything, it's that God absolutely is still working there. He's still working in your life. He's still molding and making you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And our job as Christians is to just be faithful to him by faith, holding on to that promise, trusting in him and being faithful even when we walk outside this room. I think that's the challenge of Esther. I think that is what we see in Esther. That although when we walk out of this room here in a moment, the world still continues. King Xerxes, still on the throne. Notice what King Xerxes did right away. He made everybody pay taxes. You still have to pay taxes when you leave here. You still got to do those things. You can't be void of that. But I promise you this. We can have rest because we know None of what is going on out there is by accident. It's God's perfect plan. It's his perfect plan. And we just need to remain faithful to him and to serve him daily in our daily lives and remain faithful to him because he is continually faithful to us and promises us that rest. If you would bow your heads and and close your eyes, We're going to sing a song here in a moment like we do each week to to close out. But with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want you to reflect on the book of Esther. Reflect on what's been said. And I do want to challenge you this morning with that last point. Have you found rest? I'm not saying you're not going to battle that. Even when you're a Christian, when you've been saved by God's grace, I still battle that. Absolutely. But can you say, I have found rest for my soul? Or do you find yourself being so wishy-washy with things that if you walk outside and it's raining, it just ruins your day? Or if your wife says something to you, it just completely destroys you. you. When you look at your life, would you say, I exhibit a life of rest? Or would you say that you've been struggling with that? You know, you can go to the Lord and repent of that. And I believe he will help you with that this morning. There is a rest and it's found in him, not the things of this world. So I hope you'll respond to God's word how you see fit today. God, I thank you for the book of Esther. God, I thank you that we can see your hand moving and working and we see your plan unfolding and how you 
save your chosen people there in Esther, the Jewish people. You use kings of heathen nations. You, you use all sorts of bad decisions. You use all these things and it worked together for your good. And God, we have to be reminded as we look at that, that although in the world now we see bad decisions, we see anger, we see rage, we see violence. We, we, God, we see all kinds of things. But God, as Christians, we believe your word and we know that all these things will work together for good in some way. It's, it's, it's your plan. And so God, we trust in that. Even though we might not see the finish line, we might not understand it. We might not see you working. God, we, we trust and know that you are. And so God, I ask that you would help, I know me as a Christian, help me to be faithful where you've put me, with my family, with my friends, with my church family, with any influence that you've given me. God, to be faithful there, because that's what I can control. God, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would help me to do that. And God, I pray for the Christians in this room, the members of this church, that it'd be the same in their life, that they would be faithful at their jobs. They'd be faithful in their families, that they'd be faithful in the things that they can control. And God, that you would use that to see other people come to know you, that you would use that to see children, coworkers, friends growing in the knowledge of the Lord. Because God, that's how you've planned it. So help us to be faithful to that. God, you are good to us. Help us not to forget that. God, as we sing this last song, I pray that it would be worship to you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.